Hi, I'm Devin Scott. I'm Will Ross. We are friends and independent filmmakers. I'm a cinematographer and colorist, and Will is an editor and also a sound designer. Mm-hmm. On today's episode, we're talking with director Sophie Rimvari about making films with super scaled down crews, resources, and shooting schedules. Welcome to Film Formally. With us, we have Sophie Ramvari, one of our most consistent collaborators. Hey, Sophie. Hi. Yeah, and uh, where are you coming in from today? Calgary? I am coming in from Calgary, Alberta, where I am currently quarantined with my partner, Mike Thorne. Great. Well, say hi to Mike for us. He may or may not be able to hear this. We brought you in today because we want to talk about process-based conversations we want to have about how you especially make and conceive of your films. Sophie Ramvari is a independent director based out of mostly Toronto, but generally Canada. And Will and I have been lucky enough to help out on a lot of your films, Sophie. Um, mm-hmm. I mostly am cinematographer slash colorist and Will is an editor slash sound editor. And together, but especially led by you, Sophie, we've all kind of developed a, I think, pretty unique style of making films that we have some strong opinions on. I want to talk about those. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to hear about your kind of development and how you arrived at the conclusions you did and especially how your time at film school and after film school informed that. So, yeah, I think it's a great question and sort of line of thinking in regards to independent filmmaking and something that was relevant before and after and during this lockdown is thinking about like the workflow and what work actually needs to go into making a film and what our tendencies go toward when we think about filmmaking is usually like lots of people, lots of money, lots of time. And I think that we've been sort of testing those boundaries the last couple of years with the the short films that we were making. And I think it's important to contextualize what we're talking about here is like short films generally and films that are not seeking to have a huge financial distribution perhaps. So I think it comes down to like how you want to define the films you're making first, because I don't want to say that you can make any film with these constraints. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a certain kind of film, but it's allows for a lot more, flexibility if you're willing to like cut a few corners without actually losing as much as you think you might lose if that makes sense that being said it's still yet to be seen how applicable these philosophies can go when talking about feature filmmaking generally just to like start the conversation i think it's good to question the ways that we've traditionally been taught to make films um, and what it takes to make a film and then kind of start start from there. Right. Because none of us were really taught, like you said, to make films in this way. I think we were all taught to varying degrees in somewhat more traditional contexts of production. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit less for me and Devin, but I think he and I have always uh, kind of resisted standard modes of production. I don't know if that's true of you, though. Did Did you find yourself when you were making student films and such 
thinking, oh, I really don't want to make movies quite this way. Mm. Or I think when I went to film school, I did a four-year degree that was a Bachelor of Motion Picture Arts, as they made up on the spot. <laughs> um, Never heard that one before, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so it was at, <laughs> at Capilano University in Vancouver. And it's a really broad but film production-specific program where everyone that goes through, they you're supposed to learn like every aspect of the filmmaking process. But the way that the program is structured is mostly around these main projects that happen at the end of every spring term. And in order to have those films get made, you have to, as a class, pitch to direct. And you're not pitching your own script. You're pitching scripts that are written by other students. So they will collect, I think, something like 10 scripts from other students. And then as the student body, you can pick one of those scripts and then you pitch it to a panel of professors. And that's how they would collect the directors for every project, which I think is unlike us if you and some other programs in which you get to pitch your own yeah. writing and directing or not, maybe not even have to pitch it. But in this case, they were trying to emulate a more industry streamline of like the writer is separate from the director. The director is not the auteur, like these kinds of more industrialized filmmaking. It's almost television. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think they're kind of aiming towards streamlining students into the film and television industry in Vancouver. And maybe like that's a kind of a problem in the independent film world in Canada and in Vancouver specifically is like people being trained into these uh, below the line positions. Yeah. Vancouver is in a kind of unique position, I think, because we are so dominated by Hollywood productions. Um, We, the vast, vast majority of stuff that gets made here is crude almost entirely above the line that is the creatives by people from Los Angeles mm-hmm. and they are giant productions. So that trickles down. And I find a lot of people in Vancouver, the people who kind of determine what our indie culture looks like are informed more by that than by what independent film culture throughout the rest of the world is kind of influenced by. Mm-hmm. So everything almost takes as a given that you're aiming to, to sort of emulate this quote-unquote high production value environment. Yeah. And that's, I think, been my working theory for a couple of years as well, is that there's this issue with the lack of identity of like Canadian cinema as it's sort of has stood for the last couple of decades, which I don't think is necessarily true, but that's sort of what's broadly accepted is that there's a lack of identity. Yeah. I think when that gets accepted through like the cultural conversation, you end up with people that feel they need to emulate something that already exists. And that closest thing to our culture, obviously, is the American independent film world. And you have then young aspiring filmmakers that are trying to make films that look like an independent American film without the budgets and without any of the um, the star system, without the sort of well-established cultural tropes of American life and just things that we're used to seeing in film and then when you're trying to emulate that without any of those resources you it kind of ends up flubbing yeah that's my that's my working theory i don't know i'm not sure if that's true but it's at the very least a valid theory i think there's a lot of truth in it i I, the concept of production value production value specifically Mm -hmm. i think is a really important one to consider here and i think it's worth trying to define it because it's a term i often hear used without it really being clearly defined and correct me if if I'm wrong, but is there a better definition for production value than something that 
appears to have cost a lot of money. That production value is is tied into the appearance of a high budget or a high degree of logistical resources in its making. Yes. Yeah, I think that's it. Yes. Yeah. I, and I can't... It frustrates me so much when I see even people in independent spheres of filmmaking, film criticism, film programming. Commending uh, that. Yeah, commending production, <laughs> high production value when I think it's, if anything, something we should be pushing against as a standard. Yeah, it's like, hey, nice money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, it looks like you have a lot of money. It's it's not really highly distinguishable to me than the difference between A, praising someone for having enough money to buy a Mercedes-Benz or B, mm-hmm. praising someone for who doesn't have enough money but carefully has budgeted their very limited resources to rent a Mercedes-Benz on the correct days for people to believe that they have a Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good metaphor. In the films that we've made together, we've managed to achieve this secret sauce of production value, but without the ex- extre- exorbitant budgets. Yeah. And I think that's worth talking about and sharing those sort of tools because it's like, yeah, you don't need, you don't actually need that much money to achieve quote unquote production value. So I think that's where like the contradiction comes into play. It's like, actually this didn't cost that much money. I think Devin could probably talk to the idea of production value as a cinematographer, um, but also someone who teaches cinematography and is able to sort of translate those ideas into actual like practical thinking mm-hmm. um, using available light, directing your subjects toward that available light, blocking, things like that, which all those things like slash your budget. I think a lot of people conflate the images that you can get as a result of money with the money, right? Um, where, you know, yes, a really good way to get the shadows in a room where you want them to get a certain image texture is to rent expensive lights and have a very expensive camera and very expensive lenses. But that's one pathway to get there. And I think that there is this kind of continuum of, I would call, control money and time, mm-hmm. <laughs> where you can have money and control over something, right? Money can buy you the resources to essentially induce something. That's buying a big light. Mm-hmm. Um, but so can time, right? Uh, I think a lot of the times when we shoot something and it's just the two of us, uh, we, to fill that in, often shoot lately your films and mine with crews of anywhere from just the two of us to like four people. Mm-hmm. Um, and to do that, though, we tend to under schedule, right? Like I remember on Still Processing, your most recently finished film, um, we would often only shoot for you know, shoot five shots in a day. Mm -hmm. And we would spend two hours setting up a single moment um, because we knew we wanted a certain way. Um, If we had had a giant crew, and by giant, I mean like five to 20 people by our standards, we could have probably gotten shots that looked similar to that in a quarter of the amount of time. But what we would have lost is a certain smallness and intimacy that you need to emotionally get to where you need to get for that film. Mm -hmm. So something I think irretrievable would have been lost by doing that. And I think that that kind of almost emotional and psychological flexibility is something that is often underappreciated. Totally. Um, I a hundred percent agree with that. And I think 
that film in particular could not have been made in any other way, which also goes back to my first point of like, you have to contextualize the kind of filmmaking that you're trying to achieve because some people, they are trying to make films that breathe outside of those uh, parameters. And so I don't like to restrict or imply that those production modes can be applied to like every kind of filmmaking, but I would like to see it tested more, I think, because a lot of people just assume, oh, there's no way I could make this with less than a 30 person crew. It's like, well, do you really need this? Do you really need that? And when you stop and think about it, most of the times you don't. Um, I think that was something I really didn't know how to articulate when I was in film school, but like when I did have the opportunity to direct in that very sort of tense setting where like you've the pressure was intense as a as a director as a student to create like an atmosphere that was like enjoyable for other students so as someone who's also like a people pleaser you're in this spot where you're like trying to direct but you're also like should I make everyone cookies like Um, and just feeling like every person who's sitting around and doesn't really have a role um, you feel an immense amount of like guilt and pressure to like quickly finish your film. I'd like to maybe sketch out and contrast the two methods. Um, maybe I can start by sketching out kind of a what a normal big student film or even just indie film production cycle looks like. And then maybe Sophie and you will can sketch out an alternative. Sure. Right? sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah um, so on a garden variety student film at say the film school I went to, which great film school, but I'm going to use it as an example. You are given, say, three months to finish a script, right? Over the summer, you write a script, you then bring it to class, workshop it for a, over a matter of months, hone it into something shootable. And it's usually a narrative drama of some sort. Um, and I mean, drama is not comedy versus drama, but like a fictional narrative film. Then you go into free production, which is you collect your crew, you build out a plan to shoot with your collaborators and logistically plan out a very specific set of time. And I think this is maybe the key element. You plan your shoot so that you can basically get a very large number of people together to work on a set for maybe three to five days. And that's a hard limit, right? And the same applies on normal independent films because of money in film school. It's usually, you know, it's more of a curriculum thing. And then once you've shot, you have a specific, workflow to editing. You edit and then you lock your edit and then you break that off into sound and color. And at all points, there's multiple people working on it and it's very rigid in its construction, right? You shoot and then edit. And once even you're done your picture edit and you've gone to color, it's very hard to go back from that. Right. If you realize and have a bold of inspiration on the last day of your color, you're probably not going to be able to act on that even if you want to reshoot something, right? And again, that's what I've laid out is almost the the, the, the quintessential uh, large student production. Does that kind of mat- mm-hmm. line up with both of your experiences? Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty much it. Yeah. Just yeah, sprinkle a whole bunch of like stress and social anxiety in there. <laughs> yeah. And resentments between people. Yeah. 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 I think the bottom line for me when it came down to wanting to work with less people, it was just the idea that I only wanted to work with people who wanted to work with me and people who uh, wanted to be there. Cause I don't ever want to have to work with someone or I have anyone work 
have to work with me if they don't, if that's not something they actually want to be doing, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, uh, of course there's the job element of film and that's perfectly reasonable, but it's like, I still would want people who are investing in like, if I'm directing a project that they actually have a stake in it and they want to take, take part in that production for reasons other than just being forced to be there. So I think after coming out of film school and having these like very large, like 30 to 40 person crews, sometimes I was like, I don't ever want to have someone sitting around Mm -hmm. waiting for the day to end on a film. Like that's just, that sucks. Antithetical to how I think of filmmaking is like, it should be enjoyable. It should be communicative. It should be something that there shouldn't be any animosity. Like, it, shooting should be fun. Shooting should be exciting. It should be something that is enjoyable by all parties. Like there's no reason why it shouldn't. Yeah. And I think the, the, one of the most painful ironies of it is that there's as many like that, what, like Devin sketched out one model and you said, and you can present an alternative, but the thing is that there's that one most standard model for student filmmaking, which is very reminiscent deliberately of standard industry production models. And then if you want alternatives, then like you literally like can draw a figure eight, you know what I mean? What kind of model are you looking for? Are you looking for essay films, diary films? Don Hertzfeld has developed multiple different kinds of working methods, making complex and beautiful looking animated films completely on his own, including a feature film. Mm -hmm. Chantal Ackerman has made films in so many different ways. Like there's so many different models that you could point to for how to make a film the relationship that usually exists is this and this is how i have shot all the films that i'm least proud of you have a concept right a concept for a film and then you manipulate that concept to fit the production model that you see as the way films are made right especially you know seven or eight years ago when i was i think still really mentally stuck in that place i would often be one of the people kind of pushing ideas into the realm of doability with a crew, for example, right? How can we shoot this in five days? Where I think a healthier way of thinking about it is an inverse relationship between product and process, where I think the process ought to be subordinate to the needs of the project Mm. um, and the filmmaker and the crew. And to me, that is a far more productive alignment than um, than the inverse. The inverse is literally ruined people's lives right (laughs) has ruined famous great artists lives are you thinking of orson wells sure yeah orson wells is a good example someone who hustled for the means for his like entire working career and like (laughs) ended up with like a half dozen unfinished masterpieces because of it Mm -hmm. no that's a really good point yeah i think a very simplistic way to think about it is like if you're not going to enjoy the process then like what's the point of the product yeah and i think that really flies in the face too of a lot of people's opinions about i think how the artistic process ought to go right um i think there's this myth of the suffering artist of course yeah i hate the suffering artist uh idea i hate this um concept that you should suffer for your art it should be painful to make it um i think suffering can go into art in many ways, but it shouldn't be like the process of creating it. Yeah. I think there's a difference between hard work and suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I think there's, there's, there's definitely a definite correlation between how much I've worked on projects and how much I've 
like them and the inverse relationship of anything in terms of how much of a pain in the ass and suffering it was, you know. There's also a difference between hard work and effort, um, which seems like a very slim difference. But I think people are often putting in effort into films in ways that they're not actually thinking through why they're putting in that effort. It's like, well, I need need five grips. It's like, why? Or I need um, to have this particular location it's like why or like i need you know just like specifics that don't actually ultimately serve the purpose of your film that much like for example me <laughs> in my first year film i just which i just uh, revisited i was shooting a scene in a kitchen and for some reason i became obsessed with the kitchen having a like a mosaic backsplash <laughs> oh no and i got my f- friggin production team and myself to get together on the weekend and build from scratch like a mosaic that we measured out into the kitchen and put into like the backsplash of this like person's house and i was just watching it the other day i was laughing at myself i'm like why the fuck did i do that like (laughs) it's not a centerpiece of the film (laughs) no like it's just like a purely aesthetic flourish that made no difference to the concept of the film right and not to say that you know production design can be incredibly evocative and useful in filmmaking but in this case it was just there was no purpose right and i'm just laughing at myself like doing that in my first year and now i'm kind of like the way that i make films now it's just like at least i can say say that i've made i've made some sort of growth every choice has a function is one of the, i think the best things you can say about a process in film yeah i, I think it's so important to recognize diminishing returns it's something i come back to a lot with my own process is recognizing the moment when you're making choices that are are not producing as strong of an effect be it positive or negative as other choices you could still be making and so many people i think go nuts getting tunnel vision on those things where they really, really focus in on something that they would really love to see, but don't recognize that their efforts are producing severely limited returns. Mm -hmm. Sophie, your films often represent, I think, a almost comical extreme in this effort versus hard work thing nowadays, which I think is wonderful because I think back to Norman Norman, which was your, what, 2017... 20, no, 2018 short film about uh, Norman, your, uh, your very old dog. And we shot that in like a grand total of like half a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it had a quite the festival run. And I would always be very smug about it, saying to people, well, you know, we spent like a few hours shooting this. And we, I color corrected it on a laptop on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we just, we just got into TIFF. People would take the opposite from what I meant from that. Almost, people almost thought I was thinking like, like, like of that as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, no, the the effort that went into this was the conceptual thought that went into it before we even set foot in your apartment to shoot it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the, the pre-production slash conceptualization on your film, Sophie, and the post-production, I think, take much, 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 much longer than your production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've had a hard time with that in speaking about my own work because people do tend to really undermine like the time it takes to make a product um, and they align that with the quality of the work. So I've seen people's perception of my work like drop before my eyes when I tell them how long it took to shoot it. And it's 
and it's uh, disheartening. And I don't yeah. know, I haven't quite quite found the words to articulate how to defend that because it's like, I can see they liked the film before and then they didn't after. It's like, the, oh, it must just be a fluke or something or like whatever, you know, it's, it's like, no, you, if you go into a, a production with a strong idea and a strong concept, you don't need to spend all that time. And it's always for me anyway, with these shorts coming from a space of like, knowing my limitations, knowing our limitations as filmmakers with the money that we have and just accepting those limitations as a, a virtue um, and not as like a, a setback. And then you're not fighting against it. We could do an entire episode where I just complain about how flukes are so much rarer in film than people think they are. <laughs> like if you saw a film and you thought it was good. And then you see that every other film that every person involved in the film may has ever made other than that was bad. I guarantee you it was not a fluke. (laughs) Like it was, it was not a fluke. Like films, even, even at the smallest scale, like films are too complex undertakings. It, it, it does not happen. And it convincing people of that it's difficult. It's a strange uphill slog. Yeah. I've, I've found it, really disheartening at times having to speak to that especially like but I remember once being at a festival with Norman Norman and it had already premiered at TIFF and a male filmmaker approached me and was talking to me about um he had seen a little bit of my work I think he'd seen pumpkin movie and I don't know what else he had seen but he came up to me and he said oh, isn't it funny how the film you put the least amount of effort in is doing the best? Her narrow conception of effort. <laughs> and I remember just being so taken aback. I was like, what do you mean the least amount of effort? Like, what What do you know about the production? Like, were you there when I shot it? Like, why would you assume that? Like, you know, it was just really passive aggressive. And it was just like, what does it take to validate this process if not the actual festival circuit, which is all we have as filmmakers to like, put a stamp of quality on our work it's like uh i don't know dark i don't know if this story is apocryphal or not you know the picasso napkin story where he drew a picture on a napkin for someone in a bar at their request something like that and then he said that'll be twenty thousand dollars or something like that some extravagant amount and they were like what you drew that in five seconds and they said ah but it took me 40 years to become Picasso Mm -hmm, Uh, noted noted not not that I'm defending (laughs) Picasso's personal behavior in general (laughs) yeah but it takes a lot of years and and so much thought and effort towards honing your craft to be able to draw a good picture on a napkin Mm -hmm. this is what I tell my videography clients (laughs) (laughs) yeah because of course it takes time and effort to become proficient in your craft so like like Devin let's just say you're coloring a film for someone it takes you half a day and you charge them your your daily rate and they're like oh that only took you half a day it's like well how long would it take you mister (laughs) like you know you can't you can't judge work that way um and especially when it's great creative work it's like there's you just can't put those kinds of um quality restrictions on work and everyone can, you know, cheer the, you know, whatever runner that can run faster, but it's a lot harder to kind of, you know, um, quantify stuff like, you know, conceptual skills, you know, like how, what is the depth of your thoughts basically? But I think it, for me, it always comes back to like, what is a film? 
and what can be accepted as a film and trying to challenge those questions with filmmaking. It can really lead to some exciting results that don't necessarily cost that much money. And I feel like we've had a good run at that in the last couple of years with the shorts that we've been making. And I think it's exciting and, and inspiring um, to see it, those films like landing with people. It's hard to own it sometimes because it's kind of looked down upon within the more traditional realm of filmmaking. But yeah, for me, it's like, what is a film? Like, I think like any female young aspiring filmmaker, I started watching Chantal Ackerman films and I was like really moved by the limitations that she was working within. And that helped me sort of open my eyes into this idea of like what constitutes a film. And then you look at essay films, diary films, personal films, and how can you sort Whatever of... Whatever Panahi's films are. Yeah, well, you can blend those kinds of genres together and yeah. and all it comes down to is like the core of like the, the concept and like the emotional, the root of it. And that is enough for people most of the time. Yeah, you don't need to have... Yeah, what do you need to have to make a film, I guess, is a good question. Everything they don't ask about in Q&As. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's worth pointing out too that this not only applies to the classical elements of film, that being story, and also to the formal aspects, right? Um, where how a film is shot, how a film is edited, how a film, the language the film is using to to convey its thoughts, all this applies to that. I think even even more so, if anything. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's. I think also as Canadian filmmakers, it's something that is a, has a long-standing tradition of looking at your limitations and accepting them, which hasn't necessarily always worked out in our favor. But I think that's where the sort of documentary tradition comes from in Canada, because we're not working with like millions and millions of dollars. But that's where now I think the documentary is kind of meeting the fiction halfway and where those blendings blending of genres is happening in a way that is creating something entirely, not entirely new, it's been around, but it, in a way that kind of allows you to have your cake and eat it too. Like you don't have to just be a documentary filmmaker anymore. You can incorporate elements of fiction and like people are doing it without even realizing it all the time. Yeah. Um, which is exciting and I think should be embraced. I think that pretty much describes all of your films since at least Pumpkin Movie. Speaking of which, hypothetical here, uh, we, we've been talking up the merits of smaller scale, small crew, small budget, asynchronous to styles. If you got offered a $10 million budget to make a film, do you think that, one, would you use those $10 million? But two using those $10 million, do you think you would make a film with a more standard looking industry style structure in crew and process or? I think that's a great question. And something um, that I realized in the last couple of films that I've worked on, or I guess just the one in dog years, we had a budget um, from the CBC and there's a couple of projects that we are in development for that we have budgets for, but you realize obviously how quickly the money does go um, when you have even just a little bit, but that's just paying people. That's just paying crew, right? Yeah. Like I have not yet found still that I need a lot of money to make the concept come to life because we're working with mostly things that exist within reality, things that are, exist within our own worlds. You know, I think the opportunity to get to pay specifically both of you guys has been really 
satisfying. It's been and, really nice for me too. Yeah, no, it's been great. And like, it's, I think for me, it's like, I can't go back now. Like now that I've had the opportunity to pay my collaborators, like I don't think that I could actually just go back to like not paying people at all. Cause that's obviously how a lot of filmmakers come up. But I think for me, like still, like if I had $10 million, it would just mean that I could pay more people to do jobs on the film. But I, th- I found myself like making up roles, even when I had just like a small budget, I was like, Oh, I can hire an artist to draw these dogs and I can do things that I wouldn't have otherwise. But I didn't, I still didn't need those things necessarily to make the film, but yeah, $10 million. Like I, I <laughs> really good catering. Um, <laughs> That's really the thing. Service. Yeah. Yeah. All I can think of is either I, I, I can only think of there's two ways to take a sudden increase in budgets like that. One is to add on to the already existing stylistic infrastructure that you have going that is mm-hmm. still closely resemblant at least to your very low budget process. The other one I think is that you would have to if you infuse that money into the actual process, it would almost necessarily have to become more industry standard style because not, not because of a lack of conviction in favor of weirder ways of filmmaking, but because the more money that gets poured into a project, the more you have to become dependent on existing logistical infrastructure in Mm -hmm. order to responsibly spend that money. Totally. And you end up in situations where like, maybe you would have shot a scene gorilla, but now that you have $10 million, you're paying for insurance and location fees because you have a bigger crew. So everything that expands forces you to expand. You no longer get deals from the rental houses. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I think for me, it's, it's, uh, I'm going to refer back to kind of the idea of tailoring the process to the project and especially as a cinematographer where kind of my job is to emulate and uh, empathize with the way other people do things. I think depending on the project, it, it could mean, you know, someone gave me $10 million to like shoot We Three Heathens, which was us walking across Spain. I would still not get a car. I would not get more people. But I might, for example, spend a huge amount on way too good cameras <laughs> or, you know, quality of life workflow stuff to make our experience smoother there. Oh, yeah. But if it's with a director who wants to make something that requires more people, then uh, that would change that calculus. Mm-hmm. So I think it really depends on the project and the, and the team behind it, because I'm not actually against the large way of doing things. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think any of us are. Um, it's taken as a given when it ought not to be. Yeah. And also we should say, uh, if anyone wants to give us $10 million, like we are not gonna turn our nose up at it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was waiting for the hard yes on would I accept $10 million? (laughs) I mean, of course, you know, there's no, there's little to no way to make like a living, um, being like an independent filmmaker purely. So being able to pay like living wages to people working on your films is like the absolute ideal circumstance. Um, but yeah, I think Devin, you're right that it's like people think, oh, I need at least fifty thousand dollars to make a short film, which I just say, no, you don't. I think that a lot of the times, conversely, when people go, oh, well, let's make this short film for five thousand, anyways, the areas 
that people can cut costs in, I think are often not the most interesting or efficient ones Mm -hmm. Um, where, uh, you know, a lot of the times when I'm asked to, you know, Oh, Hey, can you shoot this $5,000 film? And can you do it cheaper if you lower your standards? Basically, right, 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 right. Where it's instead, well, instead of lowering our standards, let's rethink the entire process. Yeah, knowing where to cut corners is is kind of key when it comes to saving a buck. Knowing where it's ethical and appropriate to cut those corners also should be kept in mind. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah, I don't endorse um, unsafe or unethical filmmaking practices. Just to you don't? Life. No, I don't. <laughs> Have you ever felt unsafe working with me? Well. Well, I work in post-production, so I'm mercifully insulated from all sorts well, I, of... I did get a paper cut. <laughs> See, I, I am currently nursing a repetitive motion injury from coloring. <laughs> not my films. <laughs> nope, not your films. Your films are quite come together very fast. <laughs> he tries less. That's what he's saying. This is all an excuse. <laughs> Elaborate excuse. I actually think, ironically, that's a good illustration of the difference in workflow, where a lot of the times when the films that I basically make the best living on coloring are the ones where they shot it without color in mind, where mm. the workflow is standard, where they shot it, you know, exposing it well, but then they're going to figure out the look and post. Suddenly you're stuck on revision five of a film, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if you expand your mental capital in pre-production and shoot with that in mind, you can then, I think, save more time and money in post not having to make those decisions. Sophie, I'd like to ask, which of your films are available online right now and where can people find them? Most of my films are linked through my website, which is just sophie.me. And there you can see them all listed and those should be a a hyperlink to whichever films are online. Uh, If you're interested in any particular film, you can always email me at just my first and last name at Gmail. But most easily found would be in Dog Years, which is on the CBC website. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Hope to have you on soon again. Yeah, thanks, guys. Always always a treat. (laughs) Yeah. Any last words, Will? Thank you for listening. (laughs) Thank you. Stay home. Wash your hands. Yeah. Don't worry about being productive. True. All right. See see you both later. See ya. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. If you want to come on the show or you have an idea for a topic, feel free to get in touch with us by email via filmformally at gmail.com or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. It really helps other people find it. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. In the next episode, we're going to talk about how the editor and sound designer behind The Godfather, Touch of Evil, and other classic films invented a new technique called worldizing to breathe life into a world of fast cars and radios in George Lucas's American Graffiti. We'll see you then.